We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 20. We're going to cover verses 1 through 15. Again, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible. As you know, we've been in John's Gospel. Um, this week, um, there are some circles of Christianity that begin to observe what is called Lent, um, Ash Wednesday. And, uh, and it leads up into Easter, Resurrection Sunday, which is the first Sunday in April, April 5th, and um, where we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But being in John's Gospel that we've been in, doing a verse-by-verse study, we're going to be looking at the resurrection this morning. And then again, uh, we'll do it on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday in April. And um, this is really the heart of the gospel, isn't it? As Travis was praying that, um, you know, for the gospel to uh, be once again proclaimed and embraced, uh, this is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus is alive. And so we're going to look at this account of the resurrection of Jesus here this morning in John chapter 20. As we read in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so, Father, we do pray uh, this morning that once again as we're here, um, we are um, in a section of Scripture that, that um, proclaims the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the grave. He's alive and we celebrate and we believe in uh, a living Savior, um, a risen Lord. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this again, that our hearts would be touched to where we would um, just walk in a greater degree in that resurrected life that we live in as believers. And Lord, um, even though we may be here and we go through the trials and difficulties and the sorrows of this life, um, we know that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And we want to, Lord, get our hearts and our minds just uh, embraced in that um, to where we are um, walking in that day by day. And Lord, giving us that joy deep down inside of our hearts that passes understanding because we are believers and we are ones that have embraced this gospel message that the tomb is empty. So bless this time of Bible study. I thank you again for all those who came out on this cold, snowy Sunday morning um, to hear this message, to be with the believers, to be touched again by your word. And I pray for just an extra measure of grace and blessing upon everyone that is here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we read in chapter 19, it was three days prior to what we're reading here as Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the first day of the week. Jesus dying on the cross, and we read last week in chapter 19 that he would cry out, it is finished. And when he said that, he was proclaiming that the price has been paid, the work has been done, I've, I died for your sins, I've redeemed you with my blood. And now as we look at the resurrection of Jesus, we see that Jesus validates the work of redemption by rising from the grave. And of course, as, as we are going to read that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And you recall that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two religious leaders, who went to the governor, Pontius Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. 
And they would take Jesus down from the cross. They would wrap the body of Jesus in strips of linen cloth, as, as we read in verse 40. They bound it in strips of linen with pieces, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And we also know that Nicodemus would bring the burial spices, uh, myrrh and aloes, and he would bring about 100 pounds of it. So there was a lot of preparation. They were in a hurry because the Sabbath is coming, the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, uh, the Sabbath perhaps making a reference to uh, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. But here they are getting Jesus down, preparing him for burial to put into the tomb, that stone tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And it's kind of interesting when you think about it, you know, here's Jesus' death, but at his birth, we know that it was another Joseph that is the stepfather of Jesus, the husband of Mary, that would take Jesus, Mary and Joseph, as Luke chapter 2 tells us, and they would wrap Jesus, what, in swaddling clothes, and they would place them in a manger. And those mangers, if you go to Israel today, they, they've excavated those mangers that they used 2,000 years ago, and they were stone mangers, mangers. So he was wrapped in swallowing clothes and linen and laid in a stone manger. And here we see that this Joseph here at the death of Jesus, a rich man and a, and a good and just man, the scripture calls him, now places the body of Jesus in his tomb that had never been used. It was near Calvary where Jesus died. And he is wrapped in linen cloth and placed in that stone tomb. And we know that there was a large stone, as the other Gospels tell us, that would be rolled to seal that tomb. And then we also know that the Romans came along at the request of the religious leaders, uh, and they would put a seal on it. And that seal would be just kind of like two leather strips, they believe, a big X across the seal of the tomb. And no one dared break that seal. If you did, you were in big trouble. You would um, suffer the consequences of Rome for doing that. So here is Jesus placing that tomb. Now we know from the Old Testament book of Leviticus in chapter 16 that the high priest would, on the day of atonement, once a year, that he would take off his beautiful robes that he wore. He would take off the breastplate. He would take off the, the mitre that was on his head, the ephod, all those priestly robes he would take off. And he would just simply put on a linen robe and a head covering. And on the day of atonement, he would take the blood of the sacrifice. He would walk through the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place there in the tabernacle or in the temple. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, that lid that had, was made of pure gold and uh, had two cherubim that covered the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle it there and he would make atonement for the people, for the nation, for that year. And the people would wait. It was a very sobering thing for the high priest to go into the tangible presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, to, to make that uh, sacrifice, you know, the, the sprinkle the blood, that is, to make that atonement for the sins of the nation. And the people wondered, is the high priest going to emerge? You know, is he going to come forth? And when he did come forth, they would know that they were forgiven for another year. And the people then would be able to celebrate. Well, in our story here, Jesus, our great high priest, dressed in linen, he had cried out, it is finished. He had shed his blood for the sins of mankind so that sin would be dealt with once and for all. Matter of fact, we know that Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, emphasizes that Jesus died once and for all. 
And so did the offering take. Only the resurrection would validate or verify only if he would come out of the tomb, which he had prophesied. Remember in John chapter 2 that Jesus said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and I will raise it up in three days. And you recall that as you go through the gospel accounts, as I have said, that Jesus, he talked about his crucifixion, but when he talked about his crucifixion, he always would mention his resurrection as well. So only if he rose could we truly celebrate and know that you and I, that our sins are forgiven, not just for a year, but forever forgiven. So chapter 20, as you know, tells that story. And as we read in verse 1 here, it tells us that it would be three days later on the first day of the week, that would be on Sunday, early in the morning, while it was still dark. Here is Mary Magdalene, and she comes to... The, the tomb, she discovers that the stone that was used to seal that tomb had been moved. Now we know from Matthew's account in chapter 28, verses 2 through 4, it tells us that an angel came and rolled away that stone. And the soldiers that were on guard, watching and guarding that tomb, they would see that angel. And it was such an awesome sight, they were so overwhelmed. It describes them, their reaction was they were like dead men. They were so terrified, they couldn't move, they couldn't do anything. And now here comes Mary Magdalene. As we saw last week, she's at the cross watching Jesus die. She is now at the tomb, and the stone is rolled away. We know that the other Gospels tell us that it was uh, another Mary that was there, Salome. They were at the cross with Mary Magdalene, and here we see on the first day of the week, early in the morning, uh, she comes to the garden here. So these women, as the Gospels tell us, who were watching Jesus three days previously be taken down, his body prepared for burial, they would watch Jesus be put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Here they come, and here's Mary Magdalene, while it's still very early, as verse 1 says, while it's still dark, comes to the tomb after the Sabbath on that first Easter morning. We know that Mary Magdalene, we know about her that Luke chapter 8 tells us that she was from the area of Galilee. And she was a woman before she met Jesus that was demonized. Matter of fact, it tells us in Luke's gospel that there were seven demons that were in her until Jesus came and she met Jesus and and Jesus cast those demons out and saved her and and she is now that one is devoted to the Lord she's she's just a beautiful sister in the Lord prior to Jesus intervention in her life her life would be a life that was tormented by demons she would wake up there in Magdala that's the town that she was from. They named it after her, after uh, the Gospels, after the resurrection of Jesus. It's a very beautiful place that you can go to, right on the, the western shores of the, the Sea of Galilee. And every day before she was saved by Jesus, she was being demonized. And I couldn't imagine what that must have been like. Which of the seven demons is going to control me today? The unimaginable terror and difficulty of that. And, and she would meet the Lord. And the, the Lord would deliver her. And the Lord would make her a new creation. And she would live in that newness of life after the Lord. It reminds me of a man who on the opposite 
opposite side of the Galilee on the east side. You know the story in that area of the Gadarenes that Mark's gospel tells us that he was possessed by a legion of demons. And Jesus would go over to that area and see that man. And Jesus would cast those demons out of that man into a large herd of swine, freeing that man from those demons. And it tells us that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. No one could ever remember the last time that, that he had his clothes on, the last time that he was you know, in his uh, rational mind, the last time that he wasn't being tormented. And Jesus comes along and frees him and chains him. Just like Mary Magdalene, when she was demon-possessed, uh, she couldn't you know, imagine you know, life without being tormented by those demons. And you see, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because people like him, that man from the Gadarenes, people like Mary Magdalene here at the tomb, they teach us that there is no hopeless person. There is no one too difficult or too far gone that they can't be forgiven and be redeemed and changed. And you see, that is the message of the gospel. And that's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 that it's the power of God for salvation. There is power in the gospel when we make it personal. There's power in salvation to make us that new creature in Christ to free us from those things and free us from sin and free us from the world. And that's the message of the empty tomb, that we too, as we give our hearts to Jesus, as we are resurrected with him, the old life is dead, and now we walk in a newness of life, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 6. And so Mary and the other women came to the tomb in the early morning. The stone had been rolled away, and verse 2, and then she ran and came to Simon, that is Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. John is the other disciple, again, whom Jesus loved. He would make that reference in his gospel. And we know that here that he is there with the other disciples that had run away somewhere in Jerusalem. So it is in the garden that she would go. She would find Mary Magdalene from the tomb. She would go and find Peter and John. And she would tell them that the stone had been rolled away. The, the body of Jesus had been taken, which tells us that she wasn't expecting Jesus' body to be gone. She wasn't really looking for the resurrection. Matter of fact, we know from the other Gospels that she and the other women came to anoint the body of Jesus. And they were wondering, okay, who's going to roll away that heavy stone that has been used to seal the tomb? Hey, Peter and John, when she found them, Someone has taken away the Lord's body. Now, last week I mentioned to you that there have been those who have come along during the last 2,000 years in church history, and they've come along to try to disprove or dismiss the resurrection. And we talked about one of those theories last week very briefly. One of those theories is the swoon theory, that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that he just passed out. That those Roman soldiers who knew how to put somebody to death those Roman soldiers who would see Jesus, who was beaten so badly and scourged, and the Roman soldier, as you recall, would take a spear and thrust it up into the side of Jesus, up into his chest cavity, and out came the blood and water. If that didn't kill him, 
that he was put into a tomb, and the theory is that he revived. He would get up out of his grave clothes. He would push away that heavy stone by himself and sneak by the guards. And we know that it's, it doesn't hold a lot of weight, that theory. It can easily be dismissed. But one of the other theories that people have come up with is the wrong tomb theory, that Mary and the women, they came to the wrong tomb. And, and they tried to you know, say that, see, they, they came to a tomb that was empty, and if you believe that, then you got to believe that the Roman soldiers went to the wrong tomb, the angels went to the wrong tomb, everybody went to the wrong tombs, the disciples. And if that was the case, when the reports started circulating around Jerusalem that Jesus is alive, he rose from the grave, all the religious leaders and the other skeptics and, and enemies of Jesus, all they had to say was, hey, you guys, you went to the wrong tomb. We're going to go to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. He will come and, and he'll verify it. And you'll see that you're at the wrong tomb. But they didn't. Mary knew where the tomb was. Because the Gospels tell us that she was there when they put Jesus in that tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, another theory is they try to build on here in verse 2, not only the wrong tomb because Mary came when it was dark and she didn't know she was at the wrong tomb, but also the stolen body theory. And there are those who come along and say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. And, and they try to use verse 2, Mary coming and saying, hey, somebody's taken his body. But the Gospels dismiss that. And we know that uh, Matthew really dismisses it because when the soldiers, you know, talked to the religious leaders, the religious leaders said that we're just going to tell, you know, people that, that you guys fell asleep and, and the disciples came and stole the body of Jesus. So these theories that people have really don't carry a lot of weight. We can't take them very seriously. They can easily be dismissed, and Matthew dismisses very clearly the stolen body theory. The disciples were so afraid they weren't going to come to the tomb. They, they weren't going to come and confront those Roman soldiers. So the Roman soldiers here, as, as we know that there is an earthquake, and the angel you know, was there, they saw um, the angel, they were like dead men. Uh, the angel would roll away the tomb. Uh, they responded as if they were dead. And the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to show the world that he was risen from the grave, that he was out. So she goes and finds Peter and John. Someone has taken the body. She just assumed it, not looking or expecting him to resurrect. In verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Now you recall in the previous chapter that it was Jesus, while on the cross, spoke to John, who uh, you know, was the only one of the disciples that was there at the cross. He entrusted uh, his mother's care to John. John, behold your mother, and woman, behold your son. And John, apparently at that time, would take Mary to his house that very hour, as we're told. Apparently, very probable, that John also had Peter there at his house over these last three days. Now remember the last time that we saw Peter, he was cursing and he was swearing and he was denying the Lord and the 
doors of Caiaphas' house opened up when Jesus was on trial before the religious council in Caiaphas, and they had beaten Jesus, and he hears Peter. He hears the rooster crowing. He looks at Peter, and Peter would break down, and he wept bitterly, and he thought that his relationship with you know, Jesus was over with. And, and so that's the last time that we saw Peter. So apparently, John, you know, called the disciple of love, had taken Peter, and Peter's with John. John was ministering to him. They're together. And he takes Peter, who had failed so miserably in his denial of Jesus. Perhaps others would distance themselves from him and say, forget about Peter. He blew it. He denied the Lord, but not John. So wonder that he was known for his love. And we see that John taking Peter, I believe, into his home, very probable. This is before the resurrection as far as they know. This is before Peter's restoration that we're going to see in the next chapter. This is before John knew that Peter would be used big time by the Lord in the early church as we read in the book of Acts. And I just want to say I'm so thankful for those who have the heart like John who minister in the body of Christ, that that need that extra love and and encouragement to be ministered to. And I pray that there's more people like John, that we would be known as the disciple of love as we reach out in love to others. So in verse 4 here, they hear the news that the tomb has been, uh, you know, this... Uh, you know, opened up, the stone rolled away, the tomb is empty. Uh, Hey, I think Mary says to them, somebody took the body of Jesus. So Peter and John run together, and John, who is believed to be the youngest of the disciples, historians believe, and Peter, who is the oldest, matter of fact, there's some references to Peter being referred to as the giant. So John would be younger, he would be faster, Peter would be slower, he's older. I remember um, being at um, the conference center, Calvary Chapel Conference Center in their bookstore, and there was a beautiful painting that they had um, of this scene of Peter and John, and there's John the younger, uh, and you knew what the scene was. And, And they're going to the tomb, and just the expression, and Peter behind him you know, on their face. Could it be? What's going on? And it's just, it was a wonderful picture. I wish I could have got it. But John comes to the tomb, and verse 5 tells us that he stooped down and looked into the tomb, but he didn't go in. Now, up in the office areas, we got a picture of the garden tomb, uh, perhaps the tomb that uh, is where Jesus was put in and rose from the grave. We can't know 100% accuracy, but there's a, a good chance that perhaps in the garden tomb, that was the tomb that Jesus was put into. It was near Calvary. It was in the garden. They know there was a garden there. But it's also interesting that when you go to the garden tomb uh, in uh, Jerusalem, that you have to stoop down to go into it. So it's accurate according to what the scripture says. So John, he goes and he looks in. He, he looks in. He's more of a contemplator. He's pondering as he would see the linen clothes lying there, but no body, no Jesus. And then it tells us that Peter came in. And I'm sure Peter came barreling in, almost knocking down John. You know, that's his personality, huffing and puffing and out of breath, kind of impulsive. He saw the linen clothes lying there, but there was no body. Now, Take note of this. In verse 5, John, as it says, saw the linen clothes. It, it's a Greek word that means to behold. He saw. 
Now Peter went into the tomb, verse 6, and he saw the linen clothes, and the Greek word is a different Greek word. It means to contemplate, to, to scrutinize, because the linen clothes, the burial clothes, were you know, by itself, the handkerchief that covered his face that would be over his head would be folded up in a place by itself. The linen clothes were there by itself. Now remember that in John chapter 19, verse 40, that Jesus was wrapped in strips of linen cloth. In chapter 20, a handkerchief was by itself folded up that covered his face. But when they wrapped him in linen strips, they would anoint it, you know, with myrrh and aloes between the strips. And uh, it is, again, Nicodemus that brought about 100 pounds of those burial spices. And it is believed that these, you know, spices would mix and kind of be sort of a glue to seal the body in the burial cloth. So that's what Peter is wondering. That's what he's contemplating here. How could Jesus get out of that burial cloth without unwinding all of those strips? It was as if he had just kind of evaporated out of the grave clothes. Now remember in chapter 11 when Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead and when he came forth, what did Jesus say? He said um, that, you know what, you need to lose him. You need to get him out of those, those you know, strips of linen. And it would take a while to do that. So here we, they see... Peter, a shell of a linen cloth intact, a handkerchief folded by itself. And John looked in, as we know that Greek word is bleepy eye. Uh, I'm observing, I'm looking at this. Peter goes in and he theorizes, is the Greek word. It's where we get our, our word theory. He's looking at it more attentively, more carefully. And then verse 8, then the other disciple, that is John, who came into the, to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. So John, who came to the tomb, he didn't go in. Now he comes in, and he saw, as verse 8, and that is the third Greek word that is used for saw, eido, which means to be sure. Hey, I'm sure now. To understand. In other words, when John came to the tomb, he saw how the grave clothes of Jesus were. He came to understand that indeed that he's risen from the grave and, and he has come forth and he believed. You know that a person's faith, or you and I as believers, in understanding the truths of God and the Word of God can kind of go through this process. God can use it in verses 5, 6, and 8. I know that the Holy Spirit is the one that opens up our hearts and removes the blindfold from our eyes to, and draws us to himself, to the Lord, for us to become believers. But this process can kind of unfold uh, the gospel. When we you know, first heard the gospel, you know, we were told the gospel. You know, we, we were told something, and it's like, really? And we beheld it. We began to look at it. And then we thought about it. We theorized it. We looked at it more carefully. I know that was kind of a process that I went through. I wonder, if that does that apply to me? What does it mean? And then it comes to the moment where the Lord really opens up your eyes and touches your heart to where, you know, you more than perceive it, but you receive it. It's not just a concept theologically. It's for me personally. And some of you perhaps came to faith in kind of that, that thought process. You, you heard the gospel. 
And you heard it, and, and then you looked at it more carefully, and then you came to embrace it. And if anyone here, hearing this message, you say, well, I hear you, but I haven't embraced the resurrection of our Lord, I would encourage you, or anybody this morning that's listening, you know, consider it more carefully. We can tell people that we're sharing with, you know, study and investigate the claims of Christ. Not only just hear it, but really think about it, behold it. You know, what does it mean for you? And, and just pray for them, that the Lord will open up their hearts and their eyes to the gospel. But it's the same in growing in the Word of God. Um, I would encourage you that you continue to study it, continue to perceive it, to, to analyze it, and then the Lord will bring you to that place as you're sensitive and teachable to the things of God that, that you're going to get it and you're going to receive it and you're going to apply it. So it's important that that process continues to be played out in our lives and in our walk with the Lord. So John saw and believed in verse 9, as, uh, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And then the disciples went away again to their own homes. So Peter and John leave the garden tomb and go back home. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb. And verse 11 tells us, But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting one on the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary is standing outside of the tomb. She is weeping. Uh, I'm sure that her eyes are, are swollen from all the crying that uh, she's been doing over the last several days. And, and as she looks into the tomb there, we know that um, you know, she, she stoops down, she looks in, she sees something that Peter and John did not see, and that was two angels. One at the head and one at the feet of where Jesus was, had laid before, before his resurrection. And these angels were in white, and so they say to Mary, Woman, why are you weeping? I heard one commentator that he said that, that certain things are missed by dry eyes. In other words, in the brokenness of our lives, in those times where we're weeping because of circumstances or difficulties or loss in our lives, that's where the Lord really desires to work in us and through us to, for us to see Him more clearly, to come into more intimate fellowship with Him, to, to, to see special revelation that the Lord wants to show us. And many of you, you have that, that testimony, and we have found that to be true in our lives, that it is through the brokenness and through the difficulties and through the weeping and the sorrow that we can go through, that as we draw close to the Lord, that there's special revelation given to us, and we see the Lord clearly, we, we understand things more deeply that He's showing us and teaching us as we trust in Him and rest in His love. And Mary here is going to discover the reality of the resurrection. And maybe you're here this morning and you're weeping, maybe over a circumstance or relationship or whatever it might be, maybe over your kids. And here we see that, that Mary, as she's weeping, that she's going to come into more revelation and fuller and deeper intimacy with the Lord because she's going to discover He's alive. And the Lord's going to do that work in you as you continue to look for Him and to draw close to Him.
So why are you weeping, woman? And Mary's response as these angels you know, said that is an interesting one in a couple ways. First of all, here are two angels in this tomb in white, and yet she does not seem to be too excited about them. Now, perhaps she doesn't know that they're angels. Perhaps she hasn't you know, figured out that these two guys in white, that they're angels. And, and the early church is interesting, particularly when you go to the book of Acts, where really aware of angels. Uh, I, I think of that story in Acts chapter 12 when Peter, you know, well after this, when he was arrested by Herod and Herod was going to lop his head off and an angel came that night before he's to be executed and freed Peter and Peter goes to the house where the disciples were there, the believers were praying for Peter, having a prayer meeting, and he's knocking on the door, and a young girl comes down to answer, and, and hey, it's Peter, it's me, and then she goes back upstairs. It's, she leaves him outside, but she goes back upstairs, and she tells the, the believers that are praying for Peter, oh, Peter, you know, free Peter, Lord, free him. He's in big trouble. He's going to be executed. Hey, Peter's outside the door. Oh, you know what? You're beside yourself. It's just his angel. And they go back to praying. Now, that always intrigued me because if I was in a prayer meeting and somebody came up and said, there's an angel downstairs, you better believe I'd get up and go down there and see what's going on. So perhaps Mary didn't know, you know, these were angels. Maybe she did perceive. But I think that, that her response would have been the same if they, she knew they were angels. She doesn't say, wow, angels, I wish I had my video camera. I always wanted to see angels. And the reason that I'm kind of pressing this point is because there are those who can get so intrigued with the supernatural, you know, with angels. Matter of fact, there's been a popularity over the last, you know, 15, 20 years of angels and angel stores and, and, you know, desiring to see angels. Here, these angels aren't satisfying her. And her response is very important for us to consider. These angels aren't what she's obsessed with or desiring to see. It's her Lord. It's her Lord is what she desires to see. He fulfills her. Not the supernatural, not angels, not, you know, uh, anything else. I'm weeping, she says, because they've taken away my Lord. She didn't say the Lord, but my Lord. He is mine. He means everything to me. He's all that matters to me at this moment. You angels in white, you're not making me feel better. I want my Lord. They have taken him away. And we see here that Mary Magdalene just has a deep devotion to her Lord. They've taken him away, and I don't know where they've laid him. And I pray that we would have more of that focus of the Lord because there are certain things that can draw us away from the Lord, desiring to see mystical things or supernatural things. No, it's the Lord. It's what our hearts need to be focused on and our devotion to. And she shows us this at this time. In verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she turns away from the tomb, and she turns to whom she's supposed to be the gardener. Remember that the tomb, as the other Gospels tell us, was near a garden, near Calvary. 
She doesn't recognize that it was Jesus. Perhaps her eyes again full of tears. She can't see clearly. She's been weeping, but she isn't expecting Jesus to be alive, much less the person that she's talking to. And then Jesus says to her, why are you weeping? Sir, if you've taken him, tell me. I will take him away. Notice that, that she says, I will go get him. Not, hey, Mr. Gardner, you, if you moved him, you better go get him. You're in big trouble. And you bring him back here. She is like, tell me where he is and I'll go and get him. Now think about this. Jesus probably weighed about 150 to 200 pounds. He's a grown man. And they believed that they would bring about a pound of burial spice for every two pounds of weight. So very, very conservatively, you know, 150, 200 pounds, Jesus' weight. And the reason I mention that, because that's a lot of dead weight for a woman to carry. But she was willing to do that. Not you go and get him, but I will go and get him. Because the scripture says that love bears all things. That endures all things and it hopes all things. And she's willing to go and get him to expend the energy, to find the way. So much is known, so little is known about what really love is all about. And we know that the greatest commandment given to us in the scripture is to love the Lord with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, to love him. And I think that Mary shows us this, that I'm weeping because I want my Lord. I don't know where they've they've taken him. I don't know what they've done with him. Mr. Gardner, if you've moved him, if you've moved him, tell me where he is and I will go and get him. I was reading this week, just kind of going through it and sharing it with somebody. That sometimes our love can, over time, as believers, you know, we know the resurrection story, we know the crucifixion story, but over time, our love becomes a little bit cold and little bit distance uh, from the Lord at times. And I want to remind us of what Jesus would say to the church of Ephesus, that you've left your first love. Oh, they were a working church. They were serving. They were known for truth. They were known for a lot of good things. But he says, this I have against you, that you've left your first love. And I want to remind us as we go through this story of the resurrection in John's gospel that we see a woman here so devoted to the Lord and showing that love in such wonderful ways and coming early and seeking and, and, and coming and desiring to, to know where he is, where's the Lord. But you and I, what my prayer is, is that we would not grow cold or distance or leave that we wouldn't leave our first love that we would always be ones that would remember the crucifixion and the resurrection of what Jesus has done for us and that resurrected life being a part of our everyday life living for him and as we do and if you're here, maybe your love's been a little bit cold. It was Jesus that said, remember from which you have fallen. Remember what it was like. Mary Magdalene was full of demons. And she met the Lord. And her life was changed. And that's the same with you and me. Our life has changed because he has freed us from sin. He died for us. And we have a living hope. We have the Lord that's in our hearts. 
And we have that freedom from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives as we just yield to Him. Remember from what you have fallen. Repent. That is, quit going the direction you're going that's distracting you away from the Lord and remember those first works. Remember what it was like when you first came to the Lord. Remember, return, and do those first works. Are you not having devotions? Are you not serving with love and with great joy? Go back and do those things that you know that the Lord's going to use to just, you know, have your love just once again coming back to where it is to a greater degree to the Lord. And always remember the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 says, remember, repent, and return. And I have a fourth one that I like to add. Not that I like to add to the scripture, but remain there. Always remain there. Remembering what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this story of the resurrection given to us. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that um, your love was proved and demonstrated to us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died from us and validated it by rising from the grave. And Lord, in this season of, as we get nearer to Holy Week and as once again we observe the resurrection, I just pray for these next weeks, that Lord, that we would grow in our love and devotion to you, that we see so much in Mary, wanting to expand the energy to just draw close to you in our devotion, in our service to you, in our giving to you. That, Lord, if anyone is here that your love is feeling a little bit distant, the Lord would say, return. Return. Remember what it was like before we came to the Lord, how he has freed us through the blessings he's given to us. And may your heart be stirred. Lord, just stir the hearts of anyone here that needs to have that smoking flax come back to the flame or maybe their heart is bruised that Lord that you would bring healing that you bring hope and encouragement to the one who needs it here today because you are alive you came forth from the tomb and Lord I pray that in our lives that we would behold you every single day to staying close to you So, Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together. I pray that you take everyone home safely right now. And, Lord, that you keep us safe this week. And, and Lord, help us to just live in that resurrected life that has been given to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?